Before we get going this week, I thought I'd just remind you that I'm a certified business strategist who's been in property for over 25 years. I know my clients shortcut their success by being laser focused through strategy and mentoring, as no one business model fits us all because funding, geography, skill set, it all plays a part in deciding what works for you. Getting it wrong can definitely damage your wealth. If you're serious about property, then your first step is a call with me. Nothing more difficult than following the link in the show notes to book it. This is the Property Solopreneur podcast and I'm Rachel Troughton. I'll be talking about everything you need to create wealth by building your portfolio in a sustainable and profitable way. I'll be sharing the realities of a property investing business. I'll talk bricks and mortar, buy to let, HMOs, flipping and planning game, as that's what we all enjoy doing. But I'll also share how to use good systems, processes, and find the right professionals to work with. In fact, everything that will enable you to become a successful property solopreneur. Well, hello, Wendy. I'm so excited to have you on the show this week because many of you who already know her, she's an HMO owner and has been in the game rather a long time, so has so much experience that she's going to be able to share with us. I think most of your tenants are professionals, so we'll probably focus on that, although I know you did do students when you started off. And you run your own agency and you actually work with other investors who want to do all this stuff as well. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, because it's so important to be able to pass on the right information, not outdated stuff, which is sadly what I so often see. Um, I've no doubt that some of you, by the time we finish this, are going to be really excited about the whole concept of Wendy. And trust me, you don't have to listen for her or her social media bits. It'll all be in the show notes. So don't worry about that. Now, just to be absolutely clear, I've known Wendy for many years as we quite regularly found ourselves in the Emma Bridgewater shop in Stoke-on-Trent having, you know, very delicious cakes and coffee uh, because both of us invest up in that area. So, you know, why not go and do a little bit of networking with coffee and cake? However, she's never managed any of my buildings and we've never had a financial tie-up. So uh, we just have a shared love of all things property and investing in the Midlands, don't we? Welcome. Thank you, Rachel. What a great interview. And you're absolutely right. We did used to have some great times. In fact, we should book another one. Let's go and have tea and cake at Emma Bridgewater soon. Yeah, I do come up to see my buildings. So um, yes, that would be definitely on the list straight away. Now, for those of you who, who have known you recently... Uh, is this very well-established person in the Midlands. It's particularly crew and stake on Trent for you, isn't it? That's right. Absolutely. Uh, how did you get started? Well, really good question. I mean, if I, t- if I take right back to the very beginning, which is many moons ago, I bought my very first uh, investment property in 1996. Can you believe it? Yes, I was only four at the time. No, not really. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I started because I was actually very, I was fortunate that um, I inherited a small pot of money. Uh, It was £20,000. Now, in today's money, of course, that isn't a lot of money. But at the time, it was a reasonable amount of money. And I didn't know what to do with this money. Now, I had two young children and I had a house that needed work doing to it. And I hadn't had a holiday for a long time and I wanted to improve my car. And there were all sorts of things I could have spent the money on. But I remember talking to my mum and my mum said, look, if you want something for your children, a legacy for them, the best place to put it is in property. And I think she'd seen the opportunity and perhaps hadn't been able to invest herself. 
I think my dad was a bit more risk averse. And so she just passed that knowledge on to myself and my sister and said, you should get involved in property. So I bought a, what was a student multi-let. So it was an HMO. My very first property was actually an HMO, but it wasn't called that at the time. And that enabled me to really have an income at the same time as being a mum. And that's really how I got started in property. Well, well done for your mother for pointing this out. Most people, and for you for actually taking your mother's advice. So many people just don't listen to their parents, do they? I mean, after all, what do they know? And then for actually keep going. And why you, you know, your that first house, was it in the area you now invest in? Well, it's in the, the town that we live in. So actually where we live, the prices are a little bit too high to make them good uh, returns. So we we have got a few properties in our local area, a very local area. And of course, at that time, it was ideal for me because I could manage it very, very easily. But now we have looked further afield. And again, we don't invest a long way from where we live, but actually the place where we live in, the property prices are a little bit too high to get a good yield. So when I learned more about property investing, I realized that I could find hotspots that were a little bit better than where we actually live. And that's where I focus since then. Fantastic. And we might as well go straight into when you're looking for that new exciting property, what are you looking for? Well, ultimately, I think for me, it's always about how can I make my money work hardest? Where can I find the best place for my money so that it can do the work for me? And I go back to what I learned with Robert Kiyosaki, where he talks about the rich letting money work for them. They don't work for money their money works for them. And that is the mindset that I've always had. I've always had that sense in the back of my mind that everything that I do, every investment that I make, how much is my money working for me? How much can I make sure that this is an asset that's going to put money in my pocket? So every deal that I do, I look at it really from a number of different angles, Rachel. Clearly, cash flow is a key consideration. How much cash flow can I make from this property every month? But also, I want to know that I can add value because I believe that one of the skills of a property investor is actually being able to take a property and increase its capital value. Now, that could be by renting out room by room, for example, by you know taking a non-ordinary family house and renting it out to six people rather than just one family. You can add value that way. It might be by extending it. It might be by um, dividing it up. It might be by doing something on the on the plot of land that's next to it or the, or the, the garden that's next to it. There's all sorts of different things you can do to property. It might be by changing its use, for example. It might be by renting it out to a third party. You know, there's lots of of different strategies to add value to a property. So that's my, if you like, my second consideration is, well, how can I add value? And by the way, these are all, to a certain degree, equivalent in importance. It's not that one is more important than another, but but they're they're all equivalent and you have to weigh them up. It's a bit like a triangle. Absolutely. And then I... What suits? Exactly. And I suppose my third uh, element is how can I leverage? And is the uh, the value that I add, is it going to be leverageable? Because ultimately, if I can't get my money out of this property and it has to stay in, I've got to um, understand what the cost of that is to the bottom line and to my business growth. So those really are the three elements that I always look at when I'm trying to assess uh, whether a, a property is a good deal. You know, you hear people talking about, oh, that's a great deal. Well, what makes a great deal? Absolutely. That's what and makes it is, a great deal It is me. that last little tiny, you know, codicil which you put there about being able to get 
your money out or most of your money out because it's all very easy to own. But I own all my buildings outright. That's my end want. But that's not what happens at the beginning. You have this growth period and they pay for themselves, which is the great thing. But when you've got that new house, it's got to be uh, on funding. It's got to actually work for you. And that's where I think people come unstuck, don't they? They All they can see is your earliest mention of cash flow. And they get forget the cash flow has got to pay for so many things, doesn't it? And yes, that's, quite. That is actually a problem right at the beginning when people are setting up. And so is there one piece of advice you'd give someone who's never done an HMO before that you would say, you've got to remember this if you're setting one up? I think it's really vital to understand your market because the market across the UK is very, very different from north to south to east to west, also from inner city to let's say, more urban town sprawl, every area will have its strengths and its weaknesses. And while it's very tempting to look at Instagram or Facebook and see these amazing HMOs where the design is incredible and they look like hotels and they're the latest in interior design, that can cost quite a lot of time and money to implement. And actually, you cannot get the room rents at the end of that design period and you can't get the return on your investment. I would say, forget it. Tailor your design, tailor your product to the market that's there. So in our neck of the woods, in Crewe and Stoke-on-Trent, it's a very industrial area. Yes, there are some senior managers. We, we certainly rent to many of the people at the hospital. We have a number of people who work for very big companies such as Bentley, and they're on good salaries. But we equally have a number of working professionals who are more blue collar than white collar, yes. and their income is, is more limited. And they're simply not going to pay for £700 a month for a room. Particularly because you could you could rent a house for that. Yes, in our so, <laughs> exactly. So you know, for for those kind of individuals, you, you've got to think about well, how can I cut my cloth according to the income that I'm going to get from this particular property. So I I think it's very important to look and see what's going on in the market and to understand your market. So before I started investing in HMOs, I did significant pieces of market research to understand what people were looking for, so that I could design an HMO and. I'm not talking vanilla, kind of simple, bog standard, boring HMOs. We would certainly, you know, use color. We would certainly use paint effects. We would certainly use tools and to make it look very attractive and they're maintained very well. That's one of our key USPs is, is to ensure that our maintenance is done well. But the key really was not to overspend because it's very, very easy to get kind of carried away. You know, I think yes. if you go to, to uh, absolutely that's all it, the all, these, all these fancy things, exactly. And, you know, go to Ikea and Dunelm and wherever else and the range and, you know, buy up half the store to dress your HMO. But at the, the end of it, are you actually achieving any more in rental? And that's, I think, where it's very important to keep that sharp business edge on your, on your business, Absolutely. not to overspend. It's business really is very, very vital. And I think it's very difficult for especially new people coming into it who are saturated on Facebook and Instagram of the most gorgeous. And I, I, you know, I'll tell you, they are, aren't they, gorgeous rooms? But it's not always necessary. You know, I always laugh because uh, I have a couple of student lets that are not a, are not for instance on suite because I have a very good market and people who couldn't afford that it's no good just say every student would want an on suite yes they might but they might not want to pay for it correct so I'm 
I am paying and I'm producing something they want. And that's so important because I think most people forget that, as you mentioned, there are so many different types of HMOs. I mean, the government is is doing a lot of research at the moment on the whole subject, which I know you're involved in to a certain degree, because we all think HMO, we're looking at lovely people like us, aren't we, living in a shared accommodation. We're thinking the friends experience, but actually it's migrant workers, you know, it's benefit claimants, ex-offenders, and the coastal towns, you know, you've got seasonal workers. Yes, you've got students and you've got high-end people. They're not all looking for the same thing, are they? But no. if every single one of those groups will make an HMO investor a very good living. Yes, so- quite. And, and I think you're absolutely right. There are so many different types of HMO, Rachel, we can forget that not everybody is a high-end earning professional working in the city you know many of them are working in factories they're working on the 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 shop floor they're working in offices Uh, they're not earning a lot of money and therefore we've got to make sure that what we're developing what we're devising is fit for the market so that you actually do have a waiting list you want to have a waiting list of tenants who can't wait to rent one of your rooms because they know it fits what they're looking for absolutely but it also means that for those coming into the market, they don't have to despair because they can't afford the best and the, the biggest known to man. You know, places like Sacon Trent, they're full of properties that you know, can be changed, can be used, can be adapted. But it is about learning, isn't it? Now, one of the things that people are worried about is the influence that the government and councils are now starting to sort of it, put upon HMO owners. You know, things since we've started have changed dramatically. I mean, are you worried about some of the onerous regulations that are coming in? Do you think it will make a big difference? So I think over the last 10 years, you're absolutely right. Since I really started investing heavily in 2013, we've seen a number of different new regulations coming in for HMOs, and it's been drip-fed by various different administrations. Personally, I see regulation as as taxation. I think it is just another taxation that is a barrier to entry for people entering the market. I think ultimately, it actually feeds through onto rental values, and I don't see that it's necessarily helpful to the environment. I know many people will argue well, it increases quality, it increases the standards, possibly. But I think, I believe that the market can do that. I, I very much believe that actually if, if people have choice, if they have if they have choice in the market, they can say, well, actually, I'm happy to rent this HMO, even though it's not quite such a high standard, because it allows me to pay less rent. And so for me, I'm, I'm very much a believer that we should have a freer market so that there's more competition, because competition drives up standards much, much more effectively than regulation does. And I think regulation just brings a suppressive element into the housing market, which I, I think, as we see, we see the effects of it. Landlords have leaving you, in droves, uh, prices going up. Seen, have you seen landlords go? in your area? Absolutely. I'm contacted probably two or three times a week by somebody saying, I'm selling up. Do you know anybody who might be interested in buying my property? I get emails from estate agents saying there's a whole portfolio in Stoke being sold, 10 properties. It's a landlord who's selling up his whole portfolio. Of course, with the changes about to come in with the capital gains tax allowance being reduced by 15% in April, yes. you know, many, many landlords, the penny suddenly dropped and they realized if I don't sell up, if I'm planning on selling, 
now's the time to do it because if I wait till April, I'm going to reduce my capital gains tax allowance by 50%. And if they've made, if they've been holding those properties for more than 10 years, they're likely to be paying something towards capital gains tax. This is going to force the hands of many, many people to sell. Again, reducing the number of properties available in the marketplace. So, which is, which, funnily enough, is contrary to everything that most politicians speak about because they know we've got a housing crisis. But it also, in some ways, stops some of the more innately sort of landlords who have bright ideas from from changing things. So, for instance, I do I do know in some areas there is this worry that councils will come in and go, oh, there are five rooms there. I'd like five lots of council tax, please. So when it comes to the single banding issue, Rachel, yes, I might have been following situation. Now, the Valuation Office Agency are the government agency responsible for banding properties. It's not councils that do that. So we cannot lay the blame at our local council. <laughs> Sad to say. But it's actually the Valuation Office Agency. So let's say you have a new housing development in your town. They will be the ones who will look at the plans and say, okay, these houses we think are band A, these are band B, these are band C. And they will then write to those new homeowners and say, right, give us your money because this is the, the band for your property. Now, when it comes to HMOs, many, many HMOs, the majority of HMOs are converted from ordinary family homes. So band A to band C properties. Yes, commercial conversions are another way in which you can create HMOs. And of course, you can build them from scratch if you're mm. so minded. But generally, the vast majority come from a normal family home. Now, what's been happening is the Valuation Office Agency have had um, something called discretion to for their listings officers to be able to say, yeah, hey, that's a, a, that's a six-bedroom HMO. We're now going to band it individually for council tax. So each of the rooms now has their own council tax bill. Now, this is a real headache for landlords for two reasons. Number one, that council tax is now no longer officially, li- they're no longer liable for that council tax. That bill is actually deemed to be the liability of the tenant because it passes to the tenant on the rebanding of that room. That room is now a dwelling in its own right, and it's actually now the tenant that is responsible. But of course, many landlords, it's a total nightmare because many landlords have got in their contract with their tenants, they are responsible for the council tax and it's all-inclusive rent. So they don't want to pass that council tax on to the tenant. And of course, the tenant doesn't want to pay it because they've realised that the contract is effectively being changed and they might argue, they might decide not to pay. They don't want to go through the whole rigmarole of having to apply for single person discount, which they're entitled to but it's just more paperwork for them. And they probably moved into the HMO room because they thought it was going to be easy. One payment, one bill, simple. Absolutely. Let me spend the rest. Correct. (laughs) And then the second reason, of course, is as we know, when you own a property and the tenant moves out of the property, you're then liable for the gap in paying the council tax before you get a new tenant in. And the issue with HMOs is there's quite a lot of turnover. You might have a tenant who lives there for nine months, but then they move out and you might have a a one-week gap before the next tenant moves in. But in that one week, you're liable to pay the council tax. Now, if you've got a seven or eight-bed HMO and even one of the rooms once per year is changing over, that's still seven or eight bills you've got to administer, to pay, to ensure that you are fulfilling The council might be chasing you. You've got to issue them with all the ASTs. It becomes extremely administratively time-consuming. And this is the second reason why we feel 
very, very strongly about this, that this issue has to change, particularly because many of these rooms, most of these rooms are not self-contained. They yeah, might have an ensuite, yeah. but they don't have cooking facilities. They don't have any other facilities. You, you couldn't live in your HMO room. You're, you're still reliant on the shared facilities in the Absolutely. house. Yes. But the VOA are saying effectively, this room is a dwelling. And that's what our campaign is all about, is stopping that practice that the VOA is able to go in and say, this room is a dwelling and therefore it is liable for council tax. And if they have their way, the chances are far more people will exit the market because it is a nightmare. And also it does reduce airport, you know, everything. People forget, of course, is that if you own a property and someone lives in it, there's a phenomenal amount of wear and tear. And you have to keep these properties up to scratch. And if you're already reducing the income from other areas, there won't be enough money to always be able to do what you want to do. Because one of the things I think is so overlooked when people talk about, oh, the marvels of HMOs is just how much uh, repair and uh, replacement does actually go on. I mean, do you have rolling programs for this or is it ad hoc for you? Well, we have a regular maintenance check on all our properties. So every month we have a maintenance team who goes in and checks the properties, particularly for health and safety. They check the fire alarms, they check the the fire doors, they make sure that all the necessary health and safety features are working as we have to do in, in a licensed property. And that will often, of course, bring up other issues because they're things that maybe the tenants haven't noticed or haven't reported. So our maintenance team will then bring a whole report to say, right, this needs doing, this needs doing, this needs doing. But we also have a tenant reporting system as well. So that if a tenant, let's say their shower breaks down or, you know, the carpet's rolled up at the bottom of the stairs and it's a trip hazard or the front door isn't closing properly or whatever it is, it's a myriad of problems, then they have to be able to report in and we we respond to that as well. So you're absolutely right. We have a proactive and a reactive service. Absolutely. And we have a... I was going to say this. This, it, you know, has to, when you have tenants, you can't say, "Well, I'll, I'll do that." But in three weeks' time, when someone's paid me, this is all about good cash flow management, isn't it? If you are an agent, it is. It is. It is absolutely yes, absolutely. And I think that you're absolutely right that these constrictions on the market, the, the necessity to do this, to do this work, and the necessity to keep your properties maintained, which is right, and I don't yeah. have any issue with no. good maintenance and good service. But I think one of the problems, as you you mentioned, is that that's a that's a necessary cost. What is an unnecessary cost is that now having multiple council tax bills. What is an unnecessary cost is having licensing for, let's say, a five-bed HMO. Why should a five-bed HMO be licensed? It was perfectly fine for it to be three-storey uh, HMO prior to 2018, but suddenly now we've got to have five-bed HMOs licensed as well. So what we're doing is we're slowly restricting the field of people who can afford to invest in HMOs and we're slowly restricting the the uh, availability of HMO rooms for tenants. Which, you know, I don't think you're running short of tenants, are you? So I think it rather proves the point that there is a big demand for them. Now, what, I mean, HMOs were very badly hit, according to all things media, during COVID, because everyone ran home to parents. Was that actually the truth? How did it work? I think there was a certain element of that. Uh, There were two things that we saw. Sorry, three, actually. Number one, we saw some tenants who had come from places like Eastern Europe going back to Eastern Europe. 
They wanted to be back with their families. They wanted to be back in their hometowns. They didn't want to be in the local area here. Sometimes, of course, their job had ended or they weren't entitled to some of the furlough schemes. So they had no income coming in. So they had to make a, a, a dash for it, if you like, to go back to <laughs> yes. their family home. Um, so we saw some of that. Not a huge amount, maybe 10% of tenants. Then we saw another probably 10% of tenants losing their jobs, getting into financial difficulties. And we worked with those tenants very carefully to enable them to produce a rent repayment plan and to find a way that they could stay in the HMO and make up their rent after COVID had, had finished or to find some way of, of, of doing that. And actually, most of those tenants came good. And then we had another group of tenants who decided to actually stay put. They were the ones who stayed in the HMOs. They lived in the HMO and they were very cautious about mixing. They were very cautious about hand sanitization, about wearing face masks within the house. And they were very nervous whether whenever we sent a tradesman in, you know, we had to make sure that we told them that the tradesman was coming, what time that person was going to be there so that they could then self-isolate and get out of the way. So we found there was a sort of mixture of reactions between our tenants. But I have to say, Rachel, by the time COVID finished, uh, we were 100% occupied on nearly 200 rooms and we were starting to have to put the rents up. And that was, you know, 18 months ago. And um, so, we've so seen that, sounds, that throughout 2022. Because that really, I mean, that's a lovely statistic and, and things as well. That proves that, you know, it doesn't matter what anyone throws at you. It is perfectly possible to create a business that will work. You've just got to adapt and change. I mean, I can see that you adapted and changed by actually interacting on a huge scale there. But you came out of it stronger than you'd gone in. Yes, um, absolutely. Which, according to everything that we got told about on a day-to-day gloomy basis was that, you know, you should have been six foot under by now. You know, the whole thing should have gone to pop. You, you know, the, the thing should have broken. But actually, it's it is. It comes back to it's a people business, isn't it? It and is. It your is. Your rooms are occupied by people. If you treat the people right and you interact with them individually, you will get the best out of them. Of course, you. I mean, you will have the odd, you know, bad person who runs off and, and you never get their money. But the big scheme of things, you came out okay on that. Yes, we did. And in fact, we did a couple of developments during COVID as well. We we added more rooms to our portfolio. And I think that on the whole, we we came out relatively unscathed. Certainly when I was hearing some horror stories about surface accommodation, I must admit I was thinking I'm quite glad we're in the residential market and not in the holiday market because for us that was um, you know, it gave us very, very good and regular steady cash flow. Absolutely. And do you see that there is a a very big difference between how, for instance, the HMO market is financed and run to, say, service accommodation, which tends to not always be under the umbrella of of holiday lets? There's a bit of fudging that goes on there. There is. And I think it's going to be very interesting in time to see what happens. I know that there are certain members of parliament who are very concerned about the growth of service accommodation or holiday lets uh, in their local area because they believe this is reducing the levels of rental stock. And in fact, there was a letter sent to the Times last year and I wrote that, I responded to that by writing to all the individual MPs, I think there were about seven of them, who were who represented either places like the Southwest or some of the, 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 the seaside towns, uh, some of which you, you were talking about earlier. And I wrote to them and explained why landlords had moved from residential to service accommodation. 
Union, the tax breaks, the benefits, Section 24 implications. And I, I produced a chart to explain to them the differences and to help them to understand that had the government not changed the landscape when it comes to residential property investing, they might have found there was still much more residential stock available. Again, I've spoken to many, many landlords and, and uh, or up and down the country who said I would far rather be in residential because I'd like getting long-term tenants living in my property and looking after them. But the problem is because of Section 24, I'm damaged. I'm, I'm financially in a very, very much worse position by doing that. So I've moved them to short-term lets or to other versions, as you say. <laughs> versions, um, yes. Which mean that I kind of, you know, get out of the radar of Section 24. I don't, I, it, it is no longer the residential sector that I'm growing my business in. And because it's very complex, and, and this is the problem with housing, this is the problem with HMOs, is that you have got so many areas of law and practice. You've got building regulations, you've got planning permission, you've got council tax, you've got licensing, you've got Article 4, you've then got the taxation system. Unless you have been in this business for a long time and understood those and actually used them, worked with them, found out, the, the, the if you like, the, the holes, found out the kind of the pathways through. I don't blame those MBs for not understanding what they've got themselves into, but I do blame them for not learning and not educating themselves about this because otherwise they come across as being a little bit of a screaming banshee about something which they themselves could fix. Yes, they could. And and again, you know, they were taking headlines. Um, you know, we I'm Suffolk Coast is half an hour from me. So we were one of the we saw various towns around us that became absolute ghost towns. And then suddenly everybody turned up when COVID started. I wondered why the locals were all go home, go back to London, go back to wherever it is you come from. So that, you know, there was suddenly a lot of knee-jerk reaction. But funny enough, knee-jerk again, I think, is happening in the HMA market. Because what's your view on all-inclusive and the other sort, which is when tenants have to actually get together and pay the utilities individually? Whichever way they use. And I know that some of the utility companies are very user-friendly now for separated bills. Do you see all-inclusive still staying, going? How do you view it? That's a really good question, Rachel. I think in this time of energy uncertainty, uh, I think it's a model that we're re-evaluating. I think lots of HMO landlords are beginning to stand back and say, is this still a model that we want to purport with our with our tenants? And I would say, I think on the whole, it probably still is, because I think to give HMO landlords their due, while they may have had to increase rents, many of them have absorbed the extra costs of the, yes. of the energy yeah. uh, increases um, and haven't passed those on to their tenants because they recognise that long-term loyalty and long-term residency is actually very profitable if you can make sure that you are you know, grabbing onto some of those uh, those costs. I've also seen HMO landlords because of the the the, uh, the difficulties with their energy costs sell up. Um, but I do think that there might be some ways in which um, landlords are starting to be more creative. Now, obviously, in the in the student sector, it's 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 long been an established model to allow the the, the tenants as a group of tenants to have, say, a joint and several liability tenancy. So they rent the property, but they would then divvy up the gas bill, the water bill, the electric bill Absolutely. themselves. And of course, students aren't paying tax, council tax anyway, so they're, they're eliminated from that as well, which is helpful. 
But I think that when it comes to the professional market, it's harder to do. I think it's harder to achieve that because of the method and the, the timings of people moving into a property and then moving out of a property. How would you apportion their usage fairly? And I yes. think that's where it becomes very difficult. But also, of course, how with a student group, they like each other. But yes. maybe if it's a professional group, they didn't know each other before you put them together, did they? Exactly. And they might, some of them might be there for six months, some of them might have been there for three years. Yes. So introducing it may also be a bit of a, a sort of a communications challenge. <laughs> <laughs> challenge. Don't we love a challenge for the property world? Yeah, that's quite. <laughs> I, I think, though, it's interesting because I have seen some landlords start to individually meter rooms for electricity. And I think that's a very interesting development. I've seen buildings, uh, of course, with the the, the, the um, development, I suppose, also in gas boilers. And, and when I say development, I mean there's a restriction on the use of gas boilers. And I think by 2025 or is it 2030, the government has said that no new gas boilers will be able to be put into new houses. So if we move into an environment where we are not going to be able to have gas boilers supported, then I suspect that we're going to be all moved over to electric supplies, in which case it might be easier for individual rooms to have their own individual thermostats, their own individual meters, to allow tenants to pay for their own usage. That again would mean they're, mean they're responsible for how much they use, but you could lower the rent as well, because you could you could take down the rent by maybe 10 or 15% to be able to account for the fact that the tenant is then paying for their own electricity in their room. Absolutely. But this all comes back to the fact that it, quite often when you go to a networking meeting and there's predominance of newbies, everyone says you've got to do HMOs because they are the only way you can get good cash flow and make a lot of money in a short term. And I think everything you've said today is actually, <laughs> there's actually quite a lot to this. You know, it you might, the top line is, yeah, you, you get really good cash flow. You've got to do a lot with that money. And actually to even get it off the ground is a big investment. These are it is. buildings, it's... even if no. they're in Stoke. Yes, absolutely. You, you, even in Stoke, prices have gone up. Believe it or yes. not, we have even seen prices go up in, in, in our neck of the woods. Which means there are, which, you know, I'm <laughs> um, exactly. This is the thing. This is not the quickest, fastest way to get rich. No, absolutely. And I've always believed that property is a long-term investment. I know people do flip properties and they do develop properties. That's a different strategy. If yes. you're investing in a property, though, you have to look at this property as a long-term investment. And going right back to the beginning where I started, I did it as a legacy for my children. So in my mind, I've always had it in my mind that these properties are long-term investments. I'm not going to sell them. Boy, oh boy, the time and the effort and the money it takes to buy them why on earth would I want to sell them I mean no please you know you have to you know actually sort of pull it out of me if I was going to sell a sell a property and also with the capital gains tax changes anyway you know what's the point of selling a property I, I'd be paying all the tax to the government so I actually feel that with property the great thing is you have many different exits and you can be creative. So there's lots of opportunities. And I think that people who might be thinking, oh, I'm thinking you're selling up. I'm, you know, my portfolio isn't doing it for me anymore. I would say, take another look, stand back again, 
in, in, in now, you know, in 2023, the opportunities are absolutely endless. There's so many things that you can do, which when I first started out, I knew nothing about Rachel. Yeah, I was, I was, I was well, very it was, ignorant. It was, it was almost impossible to find out anything. It was. I do remember actually going to a course in London for two days. And I think that was about buying and selling at auction. And I did actually end up selling, uh, buying some properties at auction uh, just following that course, which was great. But you're right. We didn't have access to the internet. There weren't very many books around. It was quite hard to find out how to do this stuff. Nowadays, there's huge amounts of information out there. Sometimes it can actually be overwhelming. And it's sometimes better to stick your colours to the mast and say, right, I'm going down the HMO route and I'm going to stick to that for three years and keep going and persevering and build my portfolio. Because I believe that once you've got that steady portfolio behind you, a steady asset base, yeah. then you could maybe go off and do something you know that's a bit more immediately lucrative possibly like developments or service accommodation but you you know something like that whatever you're doing you'll be scaling in some form and you have to make sure you've got the funding hmas are notorious because people banks etc want you to have some sort of obvious track history what sort of funding do people look for when they are starting to build or scale an hmo portfolio well, I think you need to have your deposit. It's useful if you've, you know, you've got a deposit. You can get a mortgage to buy the the HMO in the first place, or the building in the first place, because it, it won't be an HMO when you buy it, but it will be by the by the time you finished it. There are different forms of finance. You could use bridging finance. You can use a, a mortgage product. And for me, the key is to have a great mortgage advisor. We have got yes. an excellent mortgage broker and he's got access to the whole market. And I think everybody's situation is so unique. You need to get independent financial advice as to what's the yes. best way for you to do it. That is but so then sad you, because, you you know, what's good for me is not good for you. And exactly. Clearly your chap, um, you know, has worked with more than one investor. So it's probably got a quite a, an understanding of what's going on. Absolutely. And and also he can take into account people's other income streams. So they might have a job, they might have other investments, they might have investments that are not really working very well for them and they want to liquidate them to be able to put them into property, for example. And there are pros and cons to doing that. So there's, there's a tax implication, there's an incoming implication. But I also think that you've got to think about the refurb because whatever you do, even if it's a very light touch refurb, you've got to have enough funds for that. And I think being prepared, getting a spreadsheet with all of that on it is really, it's a basic skill, but it's so it's, important. It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an absolutely critical skill for a property person. How do you use an Excel spreadsheet? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> And that way you can actually, you know, look at the, the numbers needed and decide whether you've got the cash that's needed to, to get this thing off the ground. Or if you're going to be able to have to raise funds from elsewhere, either through a loan or through, you know, borrowing money from somebody else. And again, there's lots of different creative ways to do it. I always say to people, make sure that you do this ethically and you do it legally. That's incredibly important. You do not want to go down the, the risks of, of, of having the FCA on your on your back for non-compliance. Yes. So there are costs to be taken into account and that there is money to that, that's needed if you're going to be buying. However, there are, of course, other ways, creative ways of securing property that don't require you to have a lot of money. And I'm always looking out for deals where I can possibly do something with the owner where I'm not necessarily having to transact huge amounts of money. It might be some other kind of strategy that allows me to be able to secure that building, to utilize the building for what I want to make it, for example, an HMO, um, and maybe pay the owner at a later date. 
And those kind of skills, that, that kind of knowledge is also absolutely second to none. But it that comes back to the fact that this is a business and you've throughout this conversation, we kept touching on sound business principles and activities. It's not just about being, oh, passionate about property, which is one of my key phrases that I absolutely loathe because I don't think it gets us anywhere, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> no, no. And actually, I think the thing about property as well, Rachel, just to sort of finish off is that you may start off loving it. You may become very passionate about it. But if you always let your heart rule your head, yes. you will fall out of love with it and you could end up selling the whole lot and then regretting it. So property is a heart and a head business. You have to use both to be successful. Absolutely. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of today to come and record this with me. Because, you know, for those who are wanting to dip their toe into the HMO market, there's nothing like a, a really good dollop of sound common sense to make them realise just what they're letting themselves in for. Because all they normally hear about is just the rewards. But having said that, that it is a very good thing to be in, isn't it? It is. It, is. it has great rewards, but it does come at a price. Absolutely. Well, as I said, all your details will be in the show notes and do look Wendy up because you've written an excellent book as well. And I know that you can be found on YouTube and all sorts of things. So do, if you found anything she said today inspiring, go and look her up. Thank you so much, Wendy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Property Solopreneur podcast with Rachel Troughton. If you want to create a professional and profitable property business, download my property business checklist now at racheltroughton.com slash checklist. If you found my stories inspiring and my content useful, then come find out more about my mentoring and strategy sessions by going to www.racheltroughton.com and book a discovery call with me. The banner link is on every page. Come and create and grow your own property business. That's the shortcut to success.